You are listening to a sermon podcast from Kingdom City. We pray that over the next few moments, you will be blessed, equipped, and empowered to bring the reality of God to your world. I want to talk to you about Jesus tonight, um, because that's the one thing that should unite us all. It's the most important message I'll ever speak. When I learned this years ago, it changed my life. I'm hoping when I share it with you, it's going to change yours. Just before we get into this, I want to affirm the divinity of Christ, that Christ is the full and final way to see God, um, that the Bible is not a static record of God. The Bible is a dynamic, progressive, moving revelation of God, leading to the final revelation of God in the risen Christ. The entire New Testament in one statement is simply this. God was like Jesus, exactly like Jesus. God had always been like Jesus. We did not know that, but now we do. And... I take the divinity of Christ very seriously. I take it so seriously, as a matter of fact, I have a 10-part series out there called The Nature of Christ, which is a university-level Christology course. That's how serious I take it. I affirm the divinity of Jesus. Kingdom City affirms the divinity of Jesus. Everybody in leadership here affirms the divinity of Jesus. But that's not the part I want to talk about tonight. We also affirm Jesus was fully human. And the problem with seeing Jesus as only God, is it's very easy to justify not living how he taught us to live. So if I was to say, if I was to say, come on, man, Jesus taught us to treat our enemies better than that, you know? You could say, yeah, but that was easy for him. He's God. Yes, but he was also fully human. And I want to talk to you about the humanity of Christ tonight. Not because the divinity of Christ doesn't matter. As a matter of fact, I take it really seriously and did a whole series on it and all that. Like, like I affirm that and we could explore that infinitely. But tonight, I want to talk about his humanity because I don't think Jesus's humanity gets enough playtime. And in his humanity, Jesus on the earth was a rabbi. How do I know that? Because they called him rabbi. Rabbi was a very special title. As a matter of fact, it was the highest honor in all of Israel to be called a rabbi. It meant a culture of people where only 3% of people could read. Imagine that. 97% of people in ancient Israel could not read. 3% could. And that meant the illiterate amongst them were trusting you to be honest, have integrity, carry the weight of what that scripture says. It means you were held with high honor, high esteem, high trust, and people trusted you to be honest with them. Because if you could read and they can't, you could tell them it says anything. To be a rabbi was unbelievable. Matter of fact, in the whole Bible, there's only three people called rabbi. Jesus, Paul, Gamaliel. That's it. You, You never see Rabbi Peter, Rabbi James, Rabbi John. You don't see any of that. You see Rabbi Jesus, Rabbi Paul, Rabbi Gamaliel. And I want to talk to you about that. I want to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus. Ultimately, ultimately, Kingdom City exists to establish the kingdom in the city it's in. And ultimately the world by proxy like that. And part of that is being a Christian or or being someone who sees the world how Jesus sees the world, seeing God how Jesus sees God, and, and, and applying the Bible how Jesus taught us to apply the Bible. This is what we're doing. We're following Christ. But lifting Jesus up in our world is not a function of announcement of what we believe, but rather a demonstration of love in how we live. And that means we need to examine what it means to be a disciple. What it means to to be a disciple of a rabbi. A disciple was a specific phrase around people following a rabbi. 
And I want to talk to you about the implications of that. So I want to look at Jesus calling his first four disciples. This is Matthew chapter 4. This is Jesus calling four different fishermen. Um, and let's see where this takes us. Let's see what happens when we look at what happened and then what happens in us after we look at what happened. What's happened in us right now because of it. And of course, we want Jesus to get bigger, the cross to work better, the resurrection to be central, and scriptures to get bigger, not smaller. So it says, once when Jesus was walking beside the lake or the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. And they were casting a net into the lake before, because they were fishermen. Now, if you're a note taker, you want to note for they were fishermen. That's a critical sentence. Follow me, Jesus said, and I'll send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed. That's an odd sales pitch. It's a metaphor that doesn't make sense. Hey, quit fishing for fish and start fishing for people. Okie dokie, right? <laughs> That doesn't really make sense. And his sales pitch, can we just admit together, his sales pitch needs a little bit of work, right? Like, follow me to where? Where are we going? When are we coming back? Like, no, just follow me. And, but here's what's weird. It works. Grown men leaving everything they know to follow a guy whose sales pitch is frankly vague. Like, like if, if you're married, how does this conversation go? Hi, honey, how was your day? It was all right, I quit my job. What? <laughs> yeah, I quit, I, I quit my job. Why? This guy came by, stood on the lake, said to follow him. I thought it was a good idea. <laughs> Where are you going? Didn't say. When are you coming back? Didn't say that either. He just told me to follow him. Matter of fact, I left my boat too. It's weird. <laughs> How does that even work? Now you think, well, maybe he found two guys that were down on their luck and they would try anything. But then he has a remarkable amount of success with this phrase. Watch this, and going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, and they were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. And Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Four for four. <laughs> Grown people, leaving everything they know, their wives, their children, their jobs, their communities, their houses, and their boats to follow a guy. Like you're serious. Look, it's one thing to leave your wife. You, things might be rough, but you leave your boat. <clears throat> you are serious. <laughs> I'm joking. Four for four. Follow me. Four people leaving. What was Zebedee thinking? His whole workforce just quit with no notice. No? Strange. Then he goes five for five. This is the fifth disciple, a guy named Levi, Matthew. So he's like, oh, next slide, yeah, Mark chapter two. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake and a large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. So Levi got up and followed him. <laughs> five for five. Follow me, people quitting their jobs to follow this guy. What is going on here? He ends up going 12 for 12. Amazing. And then other people say, hey, can we follow you? And Jesus is like, it's not your time. <laughs> you know? Which leads to this question, is there ever a moment Jesus doesn't want you following? Like, what's going on here? And when I learned this, it changed my life. If you'll give me half an hour, I promise you. Oh, yo, 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 yo. See, the highest honor in Israel was to be considered a rabbi. Every boy wanted to be a rabbi. It, it, it meant they, you were trusted with Torah. 
Everywhere Jesus turned up, oh, rabbi, read us something. Why? Most of them couldn't read. They're handing him synagogue scrolls and, hey, finally someone's here to tell us what, the, what that's talking about. This, it, it was just an unbelievable, it's sort of like this. In America, where I grew up, everybody wants to play in the NBA. We all want to play in the NBA. We love the NBA. We, we want to be, you know, LeBron or Steph Curry, like all of us. Every American child wants to play in the NBA. How many of them are ever actually going to play in the NBA? None of them. At some point, all of us are told, I'm sorry, you're not good enough to play at the next level. You're going to have to go earn a living somewhere else. But the best of 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 the best make it to the NBA. That's how it works. That's why every 45-year-old man in America has a back-in-the-day story. Like, I was awesome back in the day. Then my knee. I just hurt my knee. The truth is you just weren't that good, right? <laughs> Only a select few people are ever that good. That's what it was to be a rabbi. Every Hebrew boy wanted to be a rabbi, but at the end of the day, only the best of 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 the best made it. Everybody else was cut. Everybody else was told, I'm sorry, you're disqualified from ministry. Go back and earn a living at your family trade. But the best made it. Let me walk you through what it took in Jesus's world to be a rabbi, okay? Step number one, you had to memorize Leviticus by the age of six. How many of us are disqualified already? You're just done. Right? You had to memorize Leviticus by the age of six. If you memorize Leviticus by the age of six, you graduated to the first school. Let me show you the name of the first school. Next slide. It's called the Bet Safar. Now, the Bet Safar, it literally translates the school of the book. It lasts from six to 12. And from 6 to 12, you had to memorize the entire Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, right? You had to memorize the entire book. If you memorized the entire book and proved you memorized the entire book, here's what you would do. They would, they would just quote any part of Torah to you, and when they stopped, you had to pick it up without missing one word, right? That qualified you to take an exam, right? So it, just to take the exam, you had to memorize the whole book, which leads to this question. If to take the exam, you have to memorize the whole book, what could they possibly be testing you on? At 12 years old, they gave you a Torah exam that was not based on your mastery of content. You had to memorize the book to take the test. It was based on your ability to ask questions about the scriptures in order to keep a conversation about God going. The greatness of rabbis was not known for their ability to answer questions. It was known for their ability to ask the right questions in order to keep a conversation about God going. Think about your Bible. When Jesus was 12 years old, he was wowing the teachers of the law with his questions. Now, if you wowed the teachers of the law with your questions, you graduated to the next school. If not, you were told, I'm sorry, you're disqualified from ministry. Go back and earn a living at your family trade. But the best of 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 the best, make it to the next school. The next school was called the Bet Talmud. Bet Talmud literally just means the school of disciples. It was first century greenhouse. It was <laughs> Bet, Tal, Bet school Talmud disciple, right? School of disciples. Bet Talmud lasted from 12 to 30. It was 18 years long and five stages. For the sake of time and relevance, we'll call them stage one, two, three, four, five. And the idea is, is if you graduate from stage one, you get to go to stage Yes, everybody's with me. That's great. Right? Two to three, three to four, four to five. If you ever wondered why Jesus disappeared from 12 to 30, and then at 30 he reappears, and everybody's like, Rabbi, 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 this is why. 
So at stage five of the Bet Telmid, this is the most important word I'm going to teach you tonight. Stage five, everybody graduates. Stage five is called Samika. Now, this is such an important word, I want to teach it to you. So with that, that kingdom city gusto, okay? I want everybody to try to say this word. It sounds like this, Samika. Ready? Okay, ready? <laughs> Go. Samika. Perfect. Now, if we're going to sound a bit Jewish, right, we got to add a little thing. It's this, okay? So, so everybody try that. Ready? Three, two, one. All right, let's, let's try that again all, all together. Ready? Three, two, one. All right, now let's put those two words, let's put those two sounds together. The word is Samika. All right, so let's try it. Ready? Go. Samika. Right. Now, Samika is the word for authority. There was only, there's two types of rabbis. There were rabbis without authority or without Samika. And there was rabbis with authority or with Samika. So there were rabbis without Samika, and there were rabbis with Samika. Yep. Now, a rabbi without authority was the rabbi just the same. The only difference is, is that rabbi had to teach the scripture the way his rabbi taught him. Whose rabbi taught him? Whose rabbi taught him? A rabbi's way of teaching scripture was called his yoke. A, a rabbi's yoke was his summary statement of how he wanted you to live, what he bound, what he loosed, what he forbidden, what he allowed. It was, it was that kind of thing. And that was called his yoke. And if you were a rabbi without authority, you had to teach the yoke of the rabbi that taught you. But about once every two or three generations, a rabbi would come along so special that they would give him a title, a rabbi with authority. Now, a rabbi with authority was the same as any other rabbi, except for he could make up his own yoke. He could create his own movement and others. So that, so that every yoke in Israel was somehow traced back to some rabbi with authority. Now, here's how they determined whether you had authority or not. When you graduated from rabbi school, they baptized you. They baptized you anytime you change social status, right? So if you go from not rabbi to rabbi, they're going to baptize you. Now think about your Bible. When Jesus was 30 years old, he went out to the desert to be baptized by John. Now, at your baptism, you had to have two verbal witnesses to your authority to be considered a rabbi with authority. Think about your Bible. When Jesus was 30 years old, he went out to the desert to be baptized by John. And John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Witness one, John baptizes Jesus. Jesus comes up out of the water as a normal, regular rabbi until a second voice speaks. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And there was thunder and lightning and birds and rainbows. It's almost like the father was saying, if no one else is going to speak up, I will. And Jesus comes up out of the water, not just as a rabbi, but as a rabbi with Samika. Which means he can now make up his own yoke. And Jesus spent the rest of his life wrecking everybody else's yoke. Think about your Bible. You do not teach as the other rabbis teach, but you teach as one with. Uh, yeah. It doesn't mean he was yelling. It meant he was saying something new. You're not teaching like everybody else. That's a different yoke. 
Oh, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is, like the key to that phrase is my, my yoke. He's starting something new. He's doing something different. He's doing something, something just amazing. Hey, what was Jesus' first sermon called? The Sermon on the? Yeah, why? He had, he had to climb a mountain to create enough space. They were so well attended. Like, look, I've been preaching for years, and you're certainly a right, nice-looking group of people, but I hardly have to climb a mountain to get away from you. Like, Jesus' first sermon out of greenhouse, I mean, Bible college, I mean, seminary, I mean, I mean, rabbi school. Jesus' first sermon, there's people coming in from everywhere. Why? Well, if rumor got around that there was a new rabbi with Samika, a new rabbi with authority, and his yoke is easier than the burden they've been carrying with other yokes, people would be coming from everywhere to join this movement. It's the yoke of our rabbi. Now, once, once a rabbi graduated, the first thing he would do is go find disciples. Now, think about it. Make sure you're paying attention. If you're the new 30-year-old rabbi, where would you go to find disciples? You'd go to the Bet Talmud. And what would you find at the Bet Talmud? Pre-vetted 12-year-olds. Pre-vetted people who'd memorized the whole Bible. They had memorized the, the whole thing. They had wowed the teachers all. They're intelligent. They're disciplined. They're passionate. You didn't have to ask any of that. You'd go back to the Bet Talmud, and you'd look through and you'd only question, the only question the rabbi had to ask is, do I believe they can do greater things than me? And if the rabbi believed they could do greater things than him, he would ordain them into his rabbi school with two words, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. Every Hebrew boy longed to hear the words of a rabbi say, follow me. But almost all of them were told, I'm sorry, you're disqualified for ministry. Go back and earn a living at your family trade. So can you see why when Jesus shows up and finds some fishermen, wait a minute, if they're fishermen, what does that mean? It means they've been disqualified. And he says, Simon, Andrew, follow me. And they're jumping out of boats for the opportunity. They longed their whole life to hear the words of a rabbi say, follow me. That is the yoke of our rabbi. The yoke of our rabbi qualifies disqualified people. And aren't you glad? Somebody would have disqualified you and someone would have disqualified me. The yoke of our rabbi qualifies the unqualified. That is the yoke of our... Oh, by the way... Um, First four disciples, what was their job? Fisherman. Fifth disciple, what was his job? Ta yeah, yeah. Where did he find him? At the lake. Hold on. If you're the tax collector at the lake, who have you been taxing? Yeah. In other words, we're going to find out right now if you four have what it takes to follow me. Can you forgive the guy that's been robbing from you for years and let's go change the world? That is the yoke of our rabbi. Once the rabbi had his disciples, they did walking training. You, you would walk, lit, this is literal, not metaphorical. You would literally learn to walk like him. Jewish historians say you could always tell what disciples belonged to what rabbi by the way they walked, which makes me wonder if there wasn't a first century rabbi with like a limp, you know. But, <laughs> they'd walk. And you could always tell who the best student of the day was. The best student today was the line leader, just like in school now. And you could tell who that was because the rabbis wore these special shoes and you, it would throw dust up and it would cover the person right behind them from his waist down in this dust. But it wasn't dust you wanted to wash off. It was dust you wanted to show off. 
It was an honor to be covered in the dust of your rabbi because it meant you were following the closest behind him. So you, you'd be covered in dust when you waist down. You'd go back to synagogue, you'd go back to temple, and you wouldn't wash it off. You'd be like, hey, <laughs> check out my dust. You know? Oh, oh by the way, yeah, you, remember there's this one time? Jesus said, if you ever go to some place and they don't accept you, what do you do? You shake the dust. In, in, in other words, that's not, by the way, the same guy that said, bless your enemies and pray for those who despitefully use you is not cursing somebody here. In rabbinical culture, giving someone your dust was an honor. He's saying, if they don't accept you, bless them the best you can, even if it's just the dust off your feet. That is the yoke of our rabbi. Here's the truth. You'll either be covered in the dust of your rabbi or you'll be covered in the dust of your own issues. The dust of your mom, the dust of your dad, the dust of your denomination, the dust of that's just what I was always taught, as if that's going to stand the test of time. The, the hope for the world is not the dust of any of those things. The hope for our world is that we're covered in the dust of our rabbi. See, unless you've been given special samika, and, and you haven't, we have to live and teach the yoke of our rabbi. Which leads me to this question. Is there any place we've changed Jesus' yoke and called it Christianity? And then people reject it and we go, oh, they rejected Jesus. No, they didn't. They rejected the image of Jesus presented to them. And frankly, that image of Jesus stinks to high heaven. The hope for the world is that the church of Jesus Christ comes back under the only authority they have, which is the authority to teach, live the yoke of Jesus Christ. It's called being a disciple. The yoke of our rabbi is beautiful. I would say if the whole world converted to the yoke of Jesus, the world would be a better place. And that's the definition of something that's impactful. Like there's this one time, there's this lady. She was caught in the act of adultery, like in the act, in the act. <laughs> now that's not a great spectator sport, even if it's appropriate. But to get caught in the act of adultery. Now, you guys know your Bible, right? There's a Bible verse. It's pretty disturbing. What does it say you must do to this lady? You got to stone her. So they bring her to Jesus. They throw her at Jesus' feet. Why? They need someone with? Yes. They throw her at Jesus' feet. And they say, Jesus, the Torah says stoner. We have a verse in context, by the way. The Torah says stoner. What's your yoke say? Now, Jesus is in a conundrum, isn't he? Does Jesus want to stone the lady? No. Is he supposed to keep the whole thing? Yes. So Jesus is like, you're right. The Torah says stoner. So I say stoner. But wait a minute, I have samika, which means I can make up my own yoke. So the Torah says stoner, so my yoke says stoner, but my yoke also says you can't throw stones unless you're perfect. It's genius stuff. So everybody gets tired of holding their stones, you know. <laughs> Jesus kneels down and writes in the dirt. You know. What was he writing? I don't know. Na, 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 na. <laughs> and it says he waits for them all to leave. And then he looks at the lady and he says, what happened? Tell me about it. No. What does he say? He says, lady, just answer the question. Where are your accusers? She goes, ah, oh, they're not here. He says, great then neither do I condemn you. Why? 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 The Torah says you got to stone someone caught in the act of adultery. 
But the Torah also says you have to have two witnesses to condemn somebody. Jesus couldn't make her sin go away, so he simply made the witnesses go away, which automatically declares a mistrial. <laughs> that is the yoke of our rabbi. Which is why there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are. Why? Is, is it because you don't sin? No, it's just because there'll never be enough witnesses to condemn you. <laughs> Which leads me to this question. The yoke of our rabbi took someone caught in the act of adultery and said, I don't condemn you. Could your yoke say that? Or have we changed his yoke? <laughs> My yoke couldn't. I grew up in a church that if you committed adultery, they would announce it from the stage so that all might fear. That's not the yoke of our rabbi. That's the yoke of some jacked up white dude from 1880 with severe daddy issues. <laughs> and of course, those people leave the church. They go, oh, they rejected Jesus. No, they didn't. They rejected that image of Jesus. The yoke of our rabbi said, I don't condemn you. What's the next line? Now go and sin no more. This is so important. Jesus called all of us to never, ever, ever obsess about being right about the one verse that says stoner. Jesus called his followers to fulfill scripture, not be right about it. And to fulfill scripture is to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If you were caught in adultery, how would you want to be treated? You'd want to be let off the hook and then you'd want to be challenged to change your life. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He let her off the hook and then challenged her to change her life. See, I've heard Christians reverse Jesus's sentence and call it Jesus. Jesus said, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. I've heard Christians say, you better stop sinning so God won't condemn you. That's not Jesus. Jesus says, I'm not condemning you and may that kindness be the thing that leads you to repentance. That is the yoke of our rabbi. <laughs> There's this one time. Jesus went to a prostitute's house, which leads me to this question. Is Jesus allowed to do that? <laughs> okay, we need to practice this. If I ask if Jesus is allowed to do something, the answer is yes, okay? Jesus goes to a prostitute's house. Is Jesus allowed to do that? Yes. It also leads to this question. Is there a worse place ever to run into Jesus? <laughs> Like, what was going on at a prostitute's house in the first century? Business. Jesus is between customers, right? You imagine, imagine the guy coming out of the back room, you know? Yeah. And Jesus is in the foyer, and he's like, Oh, Jesus! Hey, man, I just uh, was here to use the toilet. And it says the prostitute was so moved by Jesus's compassion that she knelt down and wiped his feet with her hair. And Jesus said, that's it. All your sins are now forgiven. Is Jesus allowed to do that? No sacrifice? No temple visit, no sinner's prayer, no altar call, no Romans 10, 9, and 10. I know it surprises some people that anyone got saved before the book of Romans was written, but they did. See, the yoke of our rabbi is 
If you're willing to move one millimeter to him, he runs the rest of the way to you. What was the only way for that lady to be saved in the first century? Temple ritual. Who's not allowed in the temple? Prostitutes. What do you do when the only hope forbids your entrance? Jesus circumvents the entire system of oppressive power. And he says, did you see her heart change? I'm with that. That is the yoke of our rabbi. There's this one time Jesus is preaching in a full house and this paralyzed guy can't get in. So his friends take him to the roof, cut a hole in the roof and lower him in. It's chaotic. I don't care how good of a communicator you are. You can't keep a meeting together. That, like, it's just strange. So this paralyzed guy gets lowered in and Jesus says something that is radical. He says, and Jesus saw the faith of his friends and proclaimed his sins forgiven. Is Jesus allowed to do that? What was the only way for that guy to be saved in the first century? Temple ritual. Who's not allowed in the temple? Paralyzed people. They lower him in and Jesus finds any reason to meet him the rest of the way. His friends had faith. Jesus goes, that'll count. Say, Shane, how far do you take that? I, I don't know. I don't. I think it's drastically urgent that each and every one of us consent and participate in everything God has for us with our own decision. But if you're a mom and you're believing for your unbelieving children, you keep doing that. Jesus sees that stuff. A later writer named Paul said it's the faith of a saved woman that can save her unbelieving husband. (laughs) I was preaching this once and somebody came up to me after and said, what are you saying, Shane? What are you saying? Are you saying you can go to heaven because you marry the right woman? Okay, first of all, who goes to... Who goes to heaven and who goes to hell is above my pay grade and yours. That's first. Second, if that's your question, you've missed my point entirely. That's second. Third, can you go to heaven by marrying the right woman? I have no idea. I do know if you marry the wrong one, you'll live in hell today. That's a fact. The yoke of our rabbi, if anybody moved one millimeter towards Jesus, Jesus was rushing the rest of the way. It's the yoke of our, you know, the yoke of our rabbi existed in the Old Testament too. There's this great chapter called Hebrews 11. It lists all these heroes of the faith. You know, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Moses, by faith, Samson, by faith, David, by faith, by faith, by faith. Go back and read their story. They all made mistakes with zeros attached. Abraham gave his wife to Pharaoh's harem. If CNN and the internet would have been around back then, what would we be saying about Abraham? If Abraham was available to preach here next Sunday, would you welcome him or would you you talk about his past? He's always been qualifying disqualified people. Moses was a premeditated murderer. I looked this way and that and seeing no one, I killed the man and hit him in the sand. Problem was the next day the sand shifted. You got this leg sticking up out of the sand. God said, you'll do. I'll have you write the foundation of whole of scripture. Samson was sleeping with prostitutes on his wedding night because he got depressed because his best man stole his wife. And God still used him. Samson lost a bet and killed 30 people. That's out of control, man. (laughs) God still used him. By faith, David. David had 700 women. 700 women. (laughs) My Lord. Committed adultery and murder, get the one he wasn't supposed to. You know, there are Christian denominations that in their written bylaws would never have David preach in their pulpit. But they'll open a book he wrote called The Word of God and fail to see the hypocrisy in that. 
By faith, Solomon. Solomon had a thousand women. A thousand. Solomon was dating the entire city of Subang or something. <laughs> Just the whole town, you know. A thousand women. What was God's response? You want to write a book on wisdom? <laughs> Imagine that conversation. Excuse me, sir. Are you the guy that successfully navigated the affections of a thousand women? I am. You've got to be the smartest guy on earth. Let's write a book together. <clears throat> the yoke of our rabbi was always qualifying disqualified people. I love the yoke of our rabbi. I could literally talk about it all night. But if you get hungry, you'll turn on me. So I want to tell two more stories. One from the Bible and one from my own personal life. So there's this line in the Bible, it's so strange. It says, Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. Quick sentence. Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. Well, just a geography lesson. Today, from where Jesus lived to Caesarea Philippi is over an hour drive in a motor car on a paved road. Like it'd be walking from here past the airport. I mean, you didn't just, you didn't just accidentally go to Caesarea Philippi. And it was the place no Christian would go. Caesarea Philippi was the headquarters of the goat god Pan. Um, it was the most debaucherous, horrible place. Whatever the worst thing going on in KL right now, it's Nickelodeon compared to Caesarea Philippi. I, 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 it's, it was the headquarters to the goat god Pan. As a matter of fact, today it's no longer called Caesarea Philippi, it's called Paniah the city of Pan. I, I've been there and I took a photo of it. Let, let me show you a photo of Caesarea Philippi. That, that says, that's the center of Caesarea Philippi. If you're wondering why this picture is of such high quality, it's because I took it myself. <laughs> <clears throat> Photographers everywhere are trying to get strangers' arms in their photo. I nailed it. So Jesus takes his disciples to this place. Now, over to the right, that's the grotto. Um, there's some children in here, so I'm going to I'm gonna talk, in, I'm gonna talk in code, and I, the adults need to pick up. All right, so, so that, was a, that was called the Grotto of Pan and the Nymphs. Nymphos. Pan was a goat god who received worship through outdoor public acts of a certain fertility ritual. Come on now, that's pretty good. And so there was people acting this kind of thing out right there in public. And that, that cave over there was called the entrance and exit to hell. And what the priests of Pan told the people is, if you didn't worship Pan properly, they'll open up that door to hell and swallow you into it. So this was oppression at the highest level. Jesus took his youth group on a missions trip here. I'd have been fired for sure. And you can see, you can see why he has to focus them. Like all this nonsense going on. Crazy stuff. And what does Jesus do? Peter! Peter, right here, bro. Right here. Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, that's right. 
and upon this rock, we'll build a church. And not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. Jesus walks into the epicenter of the worst debauchery you could possibly imagine, and he doesn't attack them for what they're doing. He doesn't even bring it up. He's like, you're acting like that because you're scared of this? And Jesus stood right over the gates of hell and said, bring it on. <clears throat> that is the yoke of our rabbi. I used to kickbox. <laughs> I know. I was really good at it. I was. I was, back, I was really good at it back in the day. <laughs> Just my knee, you know. I fought in the U.S. Open. I qualified high enough to qualify for the NASCAR World Championships. Um, it's a different kind of fighting. I don't want to fight now. Now they take you to the ground and pull your arm off. Um, but I was good at what I did. We, I came home from the U.S. Open, and my mom had the video, like the old Beverly Goldberg, you know, <laughs> big VHS thing. And my friends had come and were watching the fights. And um, there's a guy in my neighborhood named Kenneth Brown. Kenneth Brown was a freak of nature. I'm six foot two, 86 kilos as I stand here. He was six foot two, 95 kilos in the eighth grade. It never occurred to me he might have failed five times, but nonetheless. He was one of these freaks of nature. In fourth grade, we'd go to recess. He'd shave. You know, he was like shaving in the fourth grade. Just this enormous guy. And he showed up. He called me out. He said, Shane Willard, I think I can whoop you. I said, I think you're right. <clears throat> he said, no, I'm serious. I want to fight. I said, I'm serious. I ain't fighting you. He said, why? I said, you're twice my size, man. You don't fight people twice your size. It's like a rule. He said, I bought boxing gloves to prove I could beat you up. I said, boxing gloves? You said fight. What you meant was box. Because boxing, we're going to put our hands in a mitt. And you can't grab me and take me to the ground. We're going to stand up and fight. Yeah, oh, we can do that. So we go outside. You can picture it. All the friends fight, 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 fight. They make a ring. I got in the ring with Kenneth Brown. I beat him to death. I was fast. He was slow. I was skilled. He was not. I couldn't hurt him. He's huge. I was just in and out. Pop, 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 pop. I frustrated him, and he decided to try to end the fight with one punch. And he threw this right cross. It's not like any right cross I've ever seen. The problem was the speed of which it came. This is how fast it was. This is real speed. <clears throat> I actually had time to think. I'll move now. When he finished throwing the punch, he left himself in this position. And never before nor since have I hit a human being this hard. It was a perfect shot, perfect. Big muscles leading small muscles. It wasn't, you know, it was mm -mm. compact, ground up striking. Boom! Right on the base of his chin. Bam! His head snapped back. And I just sort of stood over him like this, waiting for him to fall. His head snapped. I'd never hit anybody that hard. I should have kept hitting him, but I'd never hit anybody that hard in my life. So I just sort of stood over him. Head snapped back. Knees buckled. He caught his balance. And now he was mad. 
his face turned red. And he said, boy, is that all you got? And it was. <laughs> How many of you know when you hit somebody with your best shot and they're still coming at you, you lose? I forfeited. I hit him with everything I had. You know, Paul said that the yoke of our rabbi was put on public display. Wow. Oh, blessed are the merciful. Oh, pray for those who despitefully use you. Oh, don't let the sun go down. Oh, just bless your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile, huh? Oh, right. Okay, so let's see. Can you do it with a 39 lashes? Can you do it with a beating, a mocking, a scourging? Can you do it with nails in your hand? Can you do it hopelessly in front of everybody where they're spitting and mocking and going and they beat him 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 and every temptation on the cross was use your infinite power to destroy us and Jesus in the most stressful moment possible would never use his power and violate love and they beat him 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 and he kept loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving this is why any message of Jesus it's like if you don't do something Jesus is gonna like boom right no that's not the message of Jesus I don't care if there's a 25 foot cross over the top of the building the yoke of our rabbi kept loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving and here's how I picture it he dies you can't do much more to a man than killing what happened after he dies? Well, no one knows. Except for evidently he told Peter, and Peter wrote it in one of his letters, that when Jesus died, he went to hell and preached to the dead. This is how I picture it. Jesus walked into hell and said to Satan, boy, is that all you got? You thought you could destroy my yoke by hurting me, by killing me? No, 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 no. I'm stuck here for three days. I'm gonna preach the whole time. And when I get out, when I walk out of here, I'm gonna cook breakfast on the beach for the very person who denied me in my time of need. And I'm not even gonna bring his sin up. I'm gonna ask him, do you still love me? And if you still love me after all of this, we're gonna go change the world because the yoke of our rabbi is love saves the day. We have a once in a lifetime opportunity for three years. People are gonna be rushing back. Let us reclaim the beauty of the yoke of our rabbi. We are to be people who fulfill scripture, not obsess about right, being right about that one verse, doing unto others as you would have them do unto you, treating people as they are worth and never ever as they deserve. When we see needs and know we can meet the need, we open our splackness all over that need. I wanna give you a heartfelt, prayer that I want us to get in on. Lord Jesus, may no one ever reject you because of how I presented you. Lord Jesus, forgive me for any place I've changed your yoke. I have no right. Restore me to the beauty of the way of Jesus. Would you look this way? Your hospitality from Monday till now is extravagant. I'm humbled by it. I'm so happy to call all of you my friends, my family. I hope Jesus just got bigger. The cross worked better. The resurrection is central. Scriptures got bigger, not smaller. I hope you were moved. I hope you laughed a bit. I hope you cried a bit. Let's live this thing out. It's the hope of the world. I bless you to know that you serve a God that believes in you more than you believe in him. I bless you to know that the hope for our country and the world is the yoke of Jesus. 
May we live it. But more than anything, more than anything at all, may each and every one of you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Grace and peace, everybody. Thanks for listening to this week's message. If you have never entered into a relationship with Jesus, we want you to know that He loves you very much. So much that He died on the cross for all of your sins that stood between you and God. If you would like to make a decision to follow Jesus today, all you need to do is to repeat this prayer. Dear God, I come to you in the name of Jesus. I admit that I'm not right with you, and I want to be right with you. I ask you to forgive me of all of my sins. I believe with my heart and confess with my mouth that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of my life. Thank you for saving me and making me your child. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, or if God has done anything in your life because of this podcast, we would love to know. Email us at testimony at kingdomcity.com.